This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And Dablina, last week I took a vacation. I went to a wedding in Indiana and I was also in uh, Kentucky for a little bit too. So I was in corn country, kind of one of the prime areas of corn country. And I did see a lot of corn on my drive. I would just drive down the highway, see corn on both sides. Um, I noticed some growing right up to an Arby's, like literally <laughs> right up to the parking lot, which I thought was kind of funny. And as soon as I got home, I picked up my July National Geographic and I noticed an article that sort of sparked my interest, possibly because I had just seen all this corn. But it was an article on agriculture by Charles Siebert, and it was specifically on seed banks. And I know you're kind of a a fan of seed banks or you're interested in them at least? I am and I have no idea why considering that I'm not interested in saving apparently in in any other aspect (laughs) of my life. But before we go any further, let's talk about seed banks a little bit for those who don't know what they are. The basic idea behind seed banks is that they are backup copies of our agricultural history. So as we've turned more and more toward monoculture crops and high yield strains since the Green Revolution of the 1940s, we've boosted production and prevented an estimated one billion people from starving. But we've also abandoned a lot of the diversity that made that specialized breeding possible in the first place. Yeah, if the world's top wheat varieties, for instance, were suddenly struck by a blight, the resistance to fight that blight might unfortunately be found in some old variety or some wild variety that we have already lost. So the seed bank is basically just an insurance policy, a way to preserve the wild species and to preserve those ancient domesticated varieties of crops that aren't widely grown anymore because people are growing certain high yield varieties. You know, we we keep them around just in case. And as I learned in this National Geographic article, though, the seed bank for the long term preservation, as opposed to just for next year's crop, is a pretty new idea, one that can about in the 1920s, 1930s in Russia, and it was the idea of a botanist named Nikolai Vavilov, who's sometimes called the Indiana Jones of botany, so that's our little
little hook there to get you into this one, because he did really take part in some interesting, adventurous world travels in pursuit of his seed collections. Yeah, but as we'll see, seed banks and the genetic principles that guide them could be pretty controversial topics. People died for their scientific beliefs in the story that we're about to tell you, and scientists starved rather than eat their stores of seeds. It's something for it's a something for everyone podcast, I would say. Genetics, world issues like famine and commercial agriculture, plus a healthy dose of World War II era intrigue. But technically, it all starts in a peaceful monastery in Austria. Yeah, so we're going to rewind a little bit to Biology 101. Most of us today know Gregor Mendel as the father of genetics. But during his lifetime, he was a monk, a well-educated monk, who had a penchant for breeding peas and studying their inherited traits. I swear I can still see the little illustration in my biology textbook of the peas and how they're crossed and the photo of Gregor Mendel next to it. But after Mendel's death in 1884, his revolutionary work was largely forgotten until 1900 when a guy named William Bateson, who's considered the father of the science of genetics, popularize Mendelian genetics at the University of Cambridge. And he wrote the first genetics textbook on it. And within a few years, it was it was the new dominant theory in genetics. And one of Bateson's students was young Nikolai Vavilov, who we mentioned earlier. And he had been born in Moscow in 1887 to a wealthy merchant family. Before studying with Bateson, Vavilov had graduated from a Russian agricultural academy, one of the many that were established after a terrible famine of 1892. And famine's going to prove to be a major theme here. So just keep that in mind. A force for the podcast, I Yes. After learning about genetics and the new scientific possibilities to botany, Vavilov decided that he'd devote himself to helping the poor, finding and breeding strains of crops that could grow in all parts of Russia, eliminating the possibility of famine. Yeah, and he really, he did that quite successfully. He had a good career after school. He went to work as a professor, and soon he rose to be deputy head of the Bureau for Applied Botany. Uh, his career under Lenin especially thrived, and other positions followed. He became the head of the Department of Applied Botany at Saratov University, the head of the Institute of Experimental Agronomy, uh, and later its president at the V.I. Lenin All-Union Academy. A lot of words here, a lot of institutes and academies. But just to give you a sense of how successful he was, eventually he even became the director of the Institute of Genetics. But all the while, he did have that motivating force of, of preventing famine, helping Russia develop strains of crops that, that could grow all over the country, which obviously has a very diverse climate. But he knew that to breed better seeds, he'd have to have lots and lots and lots of genes to work with to get those desirable traits that he needed, things like cold resistance, drought resistance, pest resistance, whatever you're you're trying to imbue in the plant you're creating. And he knew that he'd need not just the wild relatives of common crops, but the ancient domesticated varieties too, which are called land acres. So just to give a further example of my Indiana corn situation, not the corn that's growing on your Indiana farm, but the corn that Mesoamericans would have domesticated thousands of years ago, as well as that domesticated corn's wild ancestors. So really, every potential avenue for genetic success you could imagine. Yeah, so that sounds like a pretty daunting task or goal. But he, So he started seriously collecting in 1916 on a trip to Iran. 
Russian soldier station there were getting sick from some mysterious ailment, and Vavilov determined that the wheat fields their bread was made from also contained poisonous weeds and plants with fungal infections. So he solved that problem there. But he also came home with seeds from native cereals, and that was the beginning of his seed bank. Later missions sent him all over the place, to the United States, Central and South America, the Mediterranean, Ethiopia, China, anywhere pretty much that he could collect large stores of seeds. And he ultimately collected 60,000 samples himself in 64 different countries. His teams collected 250,000 samples, 31,000 wheat specimens alone. And a visit to Afghanistan even won him the gold medal of the Russian Geographic Society, of which he became president later. So thus the Indiana Jones comparison. Definitely. So, of course, during all these travels, though, he wasn't just blindly collecting. He was observing what he saw. And in 1929, he published The Geographic Origins of Cultivated Plants, which identified seven or eight major centers of origin, depending on what source you look at, for the world's cultivated crops. So uh, just to give you an example, and there was a good pictorial in the National Geographic if you wanted further illustration of this, but um, South Asia, you have rice, cucumber, mango, and orange kind of spring from from that area or show a lot of diversity in that area. Wheat, barley, oat, and flax from East Africa. And there are these regions in, in all different areas of the world. And today, scientists consider these centers of diversity rather than centers of origin. But it was still a really important observation, genetic observation, geographic genetic observation, really, at the time. But even as Vavilov's reputation grew and his, you know, he was producing these important works and collecting important specimens and his government positions were becoming more and more prestigious, his programs were starting to lose funding. And by the 1930s, his position had become pretty unstable under Stalin. And there were a few reasons for this. One, For one thing, Vavilov had come from a wealthy family and was well-educated. And it was also the idea of Mendelian genetics that he believed in. Some, you know, the idea that some traits are desirable and all is not equal. This didn't gel with Stalin's belief in equality. Not at all. It's completely counter to it. And there was also the pseudoscientist Trofim Lasenko. Lysenko was everything Favilov was not. He was a peasant, poorly educated, and extremely political. And as his star rose, Favilov's fell. Lysenko rejected the genetics of Mendel in favor of maturinism, which was basically a type of Lamarckian genetics. And in this type of genetics, he believed that acquired characteristics could be inherited. Yeah, so just an example for you there, and I remember this from biology too, the giraffe's neck stretching out. So basically, instead of um, instead of it being a series of inherited traits and um, the giraffe with the mutation that gives it the slightly, lar- slightly longer neck uh, is more likely to survive. Instead of that being the case, it's the parent giraffe slightly stretches its neck over its lifetime and therefore has a baby giraffe with a slightly longer neck. But it's really weird to think about it like that when you apply it to like, what if you broke your arm? Would your kid have a slightly irregular arm because of that? No. So Lysenko took that concept and applied it to plants. Uh, He thought they could acquire characteristics from their environment. So, for example, wheat plants raised in the right environment could potentially produce rye seeds, which 
sounds rather strange. Hard to believe, exactly. But Lysenko was also a major proponent of something called vernalization, which was an old idea, but eventually it came to be really closely associated with him. And it was just the the idea of exposing seeds to cold temperatures to shorten their growing cycle. But it was unpredictable, and um, it it had some pretty serious consequences, as as we'll see. But Stalin liked Lysenko, and he liked this variety of genetics because of a few reasons, really. Lysenko gave big promises for what he could do for Russia, and Russia had, of course, been in a food crisis since the revolution, and Lysenko promised high-yield wheat crops in just three years, which, hey, that sounds pretty awesome, because by contrast, Vavilov knew it would take 12 years to breed, carefully breed better wheat varieties. Um, But also, Lysenko had the right kind of ideology. Like you mentioned earlier, um, how Vavilov's ideology didn't really fit with Stalin. Lysenko thought that plants could be educated, like literally educated, just like Russian peasants could be educated to replace the elite. Everyone was equal. Everything's possible. Um, it, it was a way to make science kind of political. So according to a New Yorker article by John Seabrook, Vavilov didn't really realize how serious this threat, though, was. He thought that the dispute with Lysenko was just a scholarly one and it really encouraged debate with him, too, you know, thought that Russia needed to be looking into every viable option for for preventing famine and for dealing with this crisis and was willing to to at least look into and acknowledge these kind of out there theories. Yeah, Blasenko was not in the same boat, though. He rose in power and he became director of the Institute of Genetics of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR. And he's been called Russia's genetic dictator since dissenting scientists were removed, arrested or just disappeared. Yeah, even the dictator of biology had a pretty big effect on on sciences across the board. So in August 1940, Vavilov was arrested with two of his colleagues and charged with treason and espionage. He was interrogated and tortured for 11 months before being found guilty by a tribunal in just five minutes. And he was sentenced to death by firing squad. So his colleagues were shot, but Vavilov personally appealed to the head of the secret police and had his sentence commuted to 20 years in a prison camp on the Volga River. On January 26, 1943, he died there of starvation. I mean, of all of all things. But during his trial and imprisonment, Vavilov's colleagues kept up his work. They didn't just abandon it all because he had been arrested. They gathered up his research. They saved his documents. And most importantly, the scientists who were stationed at that main Leningrad seed bank defended it from Hitler's army during the city's siege. And during the winter of 1941 to 42, the scientists who were guarding the collection, which obviously, I mean, tons of seeds, which are edible and nutritious, uh, were not just defending it from potential German invaders. They were defending it from the starving Russians outside, too, and from rats, thousands and thousands of rats that would apparently invade the collection, the institute basements at night, and the scientists would use metal rods to sort of fend them off and protect the seeds. And some of the crops, too, you know, you can you can keep a wheat seed as long as you keep it away from the rats for a few years. But something like potatoes need to be 
re-sowed to, to stay alive. And so they would re-sow potatoes on the front lawn or, or in any available land they could find. And two of these scientists died inside the building, inside the building with all of those seeds to eat the first winter. One was a specialist on rice. One was a specialist on peanuts. And by the end of the siege in the spring of 1944, nine scientists had starved to death rather than eat their stores of seeds. That's a major commitment. But while the scientists clearly took the collection seriously and were willing to sacrifice their lives for what they saw as their country's way out of famine, the Soviets didn't really see it that way. Before the siege, they had ordered that the city's art be evacuated, but they did nothing to protect the seed bank. Hitler, on the other hand, he clearly saw the appeal of possessing a copy of the world's genetic resources. So while the main collection in Leningrad was saved and eventually smuggled out over the Ural Mountains, some of the many outer stations did fall into German control, about 200 of them actually by 1943. And according to a New Scientist article by Fred Pierce, before the invasion even happened, scientists from the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes made plans to seize the research institutes. The really disturbing thing here, though, is that it wasn't just about science. I mean, you can you can see the appeal of possessing these huge supplies of seeds, having all this genetic material at your disposal. But one of the groups most interested in the seed seizing was the Ananerbi, which uh, it was the Ancestral Heritage Research and Teaching Society set up by none other than Heinrich Himmler to prove that the Aryans were the superior race. So there was there was kind of a, a superiority manipulation thing going on here, too, to, to possess all of these, all of this genetic material. Material and and be able to select the best from it. So one of these botanists that were sent out to follow German troops into the Soviet Union and take over these stations, uh, essentially they've been called Hitler's biopirates, was a guy named Heinz Brucher. Brucher was put in charge of a commando unit to raid certain institutes and brought back huge stores of seeds to the eventual SS Institute of Plant Genetics at Lenach, which was an old remote castle in Austria. Austria, where those stores, the stores from uh, Russia, were mixed up with earlier German collections that had been taken from Tibet. So two, two really strange, different collections there mixed in. But to add to the strangeness and the surprisingness of this whole situation, the Institute of Plant Genetics was staffed by prisoners of war and a group of women Jehovah's Witnesses that were from a nearby concentration camp. And they just worked on maintaining the seeds, planting out ones that needed to be planted, and and carrying out experiments, too, because uh, one of the British POWs was actually a trained botanist who worked pretty closely with... Lucky break. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Worked closely with with uh, Brucher to carry out the, the genetic experiments. Yeah, and the fate of this particular collection is also kind of a mystery. Brucher ignored orders to blow the place up as the Red Army approached. Some of the seeds could have been eventually returned to Russia, that's one theory, or Brucher or one of his British POWs may have taken possession of some of these seeds. So if it was the British prisoner... The botanist guy. Right, the botanist. Um, he actually went on to create a seed company. Which is kind of interesting. <laughs> yes, that's a, maybe a strange coincidence, maybe not. And Brucher spent some time in Sweden after the war before heading to a life in exile in Argentina, where he started a gene bank. Also kind of interesting. Yes, and in 1991, he was shot in his Argentina vineyard. So a life kind of shrouded in mystery and controversy, and I don't know if we'll ever know the 
exact answer to that one. For sure. So well, that's one group of seeds, though, out of the many, many collections that were in Russia. That main institute in Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg, never fell. The The scientists defended it. And uh, it continues on today as the Vavilov Research Institute of Plant Industry. All these places have very long, long names, <laughs> I know. Um, but just late last year, one of the institute's main stations where they would plant out things that couldn't just be stored as frozen seeds, um, which is at the Tsar's Palace of Pavlovsk, was under threat of development. International outcry came up because um, it had a lot of really rare specimens, perhaps some specimens that are contained nowhere else in the world, grown nowhere else in the world. Um, it's it's basically a garden, so it would be really, really hard to relocate. It's, it's a lot easier to move a vial of seeds than to dig up an apple tree. And the diversity there is pretty amazing. I mean, just to give you a few examples, they have 1,000 varieties of strawberries, which I'm a strawberry fan, so that sounds like pretty nice, and <laughs> 600 types of apples and and lots of other fruits. It's mostly a fruit-based station. Yeah, and it looks like you wouldn't be the only one who'd be sad if, if this were destroyed. Carrie Fowler, who runs the Global Crop Diversity Trust, the organization that funds the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in Norway, said that the loss of the collection would be, quote, the largest intentional preventable loss of crop diversity in my lifetime. So yeah, pretty, pretty significant, pretty serious. And um, let me know if you if you maybe if you live in Russia or if you've just followed this story closely. I'm wondering if it's still tied up in court because I, I haven't been able to find anything either saying that it has been bulldozed and upscale houses have been built or that it's preserved and the strawberries are safe for now. But uh, let me know. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And um, also, I noticed a book that came out recently, and I was thinking some of my geneticist friends might be interested in this <laughs> for a Christmas present. But if you guys are interested in learning more about the story, it seems like it would probably be a good source. It's called The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov by Peter Pringle. I think it came out in about 2007 or 2008, and I read some reviews for it during this during this podcast. But if you, once again, have any updates on the seed facility or the, the plant facility in Russia, or if you just have more scientist suggestions, this was pretty pretty fun story to research. I mean, I know it's, it's quite tragic, but um, it, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Send it our way. Once again, History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you don't have time to read a whole book, but you still want to learn a little bit more about seed vaults, we have an article on our website called How Seed Vaults Work, and you can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay 
is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to change makers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.